John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 788.GE2708, certificate number 20495, the Milgram Experiment. It is May 1962. An experiment is being conducted in the Elegant Interaction Laboratory at Yale University. The subjects are 40 males between the ages of 20 and 50 residing in the greater New Haven area. We talk a lot about a lot of stuff on this show. That's kind of the pitch right? of every podcast. <laughs> well, not everyone. <laughs> but yeah, it's certainly the pitch of this one. Talking about stuff. That's we, what we do here. We have a broad portfolio. A broad portfolio. A broad mandate. We do. We need We've to cover given all our, of human experience and culture. We've given ourselves a, br- a broad mandate. And, and um, for the most part, our mandate is that we talk about stuff that otherwise wouldn't make it into the canon. Yes, stuff that, I mean, in many cases, stuff that has already been memory hold from, even though it's from just a generation or two ago. Right. Like, hopefully, no one ever talks about the Hilbert Hotel again until we brought it forward. And now the futurelings have it on their flag. I mean, the reason I did the POW show a couple weeks ago is because I saw somebody on a plane with, I don't know, a shirt or a patch on their backpack or something. And I was like, I have literally not thought about that in 20 years, like everybody in America, it was deciding elections, yeah. this, this fact that they were obviously prisoners of war off in the far, far away jungle. And then everyone just stopped talking about it. What happened? I go to a lot of uh, mega uh, rallies. So I see the MIA flag all the time. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a, it's a main part of the scene. You don't even notice it anymore. Um, but uh, we don't often do shows on things that are that are already pretty well known in the mainstream can you think of our most mainstream topic eyebrows eyebrows super main. Every, everybody's <laughs> everybody's got them everybody loves them that's true that's true merkins everyone's got them <laughs> kind of the eyebrows of the south i guess we did oof. i mean even when we do something omnipresent like that it's more of a 99 percent invisible well, don't reference another podcast We've, that does the same thing we do. <laughs> it's more of a, everybody's got this, this thing's super common, but have you ever really thought about eyebrows? Oh, right, right, right. You know what I'm talking yeah, about, Yeah, I do. Right? I sure do. Um, but today's episode is about a thing that I think is pretty well 
firmly established as a as a topic of general um i mean it's a, it's a it's a reference that that most educated people would be able to to identify it's, lay hands it's, it's on. not a footnote it's kind of right. the test case of its thing i talked about it to my mom this morning and she was like oh yeah and just in, immediately knew and could kind of replicate the basic premise of it and immediately replicated it on you she did she immediately started uh, <laughs> She connected some electrodes. No, the electrodes were already there. I wear them as part of my hair shirt. You're a dutiful son. I am. Um, but uh, in short, the Milgram uh, obedience experiment, uh, f- I think everybody probably even f- just from those words can kind of probably guess what it is. Not in the distant future. Right. Maybe Perhaps they, uh, not. Maybe they're impervious to electric current. But it's the it's the uh, it's the experiment done at Yale in the 1960s where a person is. Uh, is invited in, told that the, that someone on the other side of the glass is trying to. It's a it's an experiment to test their ability to remember or learn, and the person is given uh, uh, the ability to shock them, electric shock. It's all it's all pretend. And this the, is a this is a great example of an experiment you probably couldn't do today. Uh, in fact. People keep trying to do this experiment, as we'll as we'll discuss. There's just all crazy kinds of transparency requirements for all psychological testing to the day that were probably not in place at this time. A lot of them, slash most of them, a product of the oh, of this experiment. Interesting. So this is literally the you couldn't make blazing saddles today argument, but for but for psychological but for shocking someone. yeah social psychology uh, um, experiments. But yeah, this is uh, this is the one where then the experimenter is sitting on it on a chair and saying, you know, if they fail at this test, you give them increasingly, uh, you know, uh, profound electric shocks up until the point that the person is screaming in pain, and then all the way to how does that work? Are they in a neighboring room, but you can still hear the sound, or is, is there a speaker or headphones? There, there's or? there's glass. You can see them there. Oh, you can see the person. You, you can see them there. I'm not sure I pictured this right. So the three the three roles are um, the learner who's on the other side of the glass, who is a conspirator. The shocky is the sh- in on the gay. Yeah, and then social classic social psychology <laughs> prank. Lol, and then the uh, the teacher. Is the person who is the subject, the actual subject of the experiment, although they think they are just a hired participant, you know, like an assistant. The shocker. The shocker who has control over the pretend electric shocker. And then the experimenter who is the, you know, again, sort of acting as a part of the experiment, who's there saying, um, you know, deliver the shock. Like they're, they're the authority. In the situation, is this actually the researcher? Like, is Dr. Milgram himself uh, holding the clipboard? Dr. Milgram uh, did not actually sit and hold the clipboard. That was a that was another kind of basically. You've got, you got two actors. You've got two actors, and the acting ability is important to the uh, to the experiment. Like, if they're not convincing, the data is no good. I wonder how he recruited his shockies. Yale School of Drama. Uh, the learner was a, a guy they called Mr. Wallace. He was an actor, and what uh, the so is he always Mr. Wallace? But there's a series of people playing Mr. Wallace, like a soap opera. Yeah, the game was that that Mr. Wallace and the subject of the experiment, and and the the experiment was uh, an ad was placed in the newspaper saying we you know we're looking for uh, for men between the ages of twenty and fifty 
who are willing to, you know, to get paid $4.50 a day to participate in this experiment on learning, on memory and learning. Uh-huh. And so the, the subject of the experiment, one of these random men, and, and in the initial group there were 40 of them, would come in, and Mr. Wallace would come in also pretending to be one of these, um, you know, a, a person in the experiment. So it looked to them as though it was a coin toss, who was going to be the teacher and who was going to be the learner. And they, they took a piece of paper out of a hat and they both said the uh, teacher. I see. So no matter who, you know, no matter which one he, the, the experimenter got, it would say teacher. These are important points for later. First, that you know the name or yep. the, not, the alleged name, Mr. Wallace, of your participant. And also that you feel like you could very easily have been in his shoes if not for a drawing. This was an either or. And Mr. Wallace was like, oh, I guess I'm the learner. And, and you know, whoever the, uh, the actual you know, the teacher, but at the actual subject, the experiment would go, Oh, I guess I'm the teacher. And then they would go to their separate spots. Uh, and then the experimenter, the third character, the other actor was in a gray lab coat. So in a position also of, important to the story, yeah, the gray lab coat plays a role in establishing the authority of the person. Um, later, Later on, we'll see that also the fact that this experiment was happening at Yale University in the basement of the psychology department, but at Yale, was a further kind of um, imprimatur of authority. Sure. But right. also, it also affects who the subjects are, right? Were they largely students or, was, or were these just locals? Yeah, they're just people in New Haven. And, but, you know, that also is a case, right? That, that these are people who are responding to newspaper ads in the city of New Haven, all men, uh, and between, you know, 20 and 40. I mean, it's not a completely random, right. You know, sample of, of human humanity, beings. Yeah. And so then the, the, um, the experimenter would say, you know, when they get the answer correct, when the, when the learner gets the answer correct, move on to the next question. When the learner gets the answer wrong, give them a shock. And we're, uh, we're trying to see whether increasing shocks will help them learn, will encourage them to learn, right? And it seems like a simple 1961 social experiment, um, plausible at least. But as, the, uh, as Mr. Wallace gets more and more questions wrong, um, and the shocks go up in voltage, Mr. Wallace begins to make sounds of discomfort, you know, like the shock now hurts. Oh, and crucially, at the beginning of the experiment, the teacher is given a low-voltage oh. shock to let them know that this is real. This is what he's going to be feeling. And this is what he's going to be feeling. But as the voltage of the shocks go up and up, Mr. Wallace starts to clearly be in pain and at the level of um at the level of 300 volts uh mr wallace is now really screaming and and begging them to stop the learn no sorry the teacher is actually physically turning a thing to turning make a the thing volts P- pushing different buttons and and increasing the volts so you have he has to feel like he's very responsible for the change in the right reaction yes. and um the experimenter, the person in the lab coat, has four uh, four different verbal prods 
to to um, encourage the teacher to continue. In the face of reluctance, he has four things he scripted to say. Because the teachers in the experiment, you know, at, at the point 300 volts where uh, Mr. Wallace is, is, is screaming, um, a lot of them expressed, you know, turned to the experimenter and said, I don't like this at all. This is one would hope all of them, but yeah. apparently only some. We we can we can I not do this? And the four prompts, and they were ordered so that um, you only said the second prompt if the if the teacher protested after the first prompt. I like see. you give them the first prompt, and they continue. To, and they continue. If they say you know no, I'd really like to stop. You give them the second prompt. If they're like I seriously you know, and increasingly as they up the voltage past that point, there are only four prompts. The first prompt is please continue, and in most cases, the teachers did. The second prompt, the experiment requires you to continue. The experiment. The third prompt, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And the fourth, you have no other choice. You must go on. It's funny that none of these four come with any kind of actual rationale or justification. No. They're just an assertion. Uh, you want to stop, but don't. They're just said in different, more forceful ways. Yes. No and attempt is made to appeal to or convince the teacher. No. And the authority of the man in the lab coat is uh, is confined to the fact that this is happening at Yale and he's wearing a lab coat and they're being paid $4.50. Uh, in the original study that happened in uh, 1961, fully all of the experimenters, uh, fully all of the teachers mm -hmm. went up to 300 volts Shocking, um, in real Mr. life, Wallace. in real life, is that the kind of shock you would yell at? Like, if you, if, if you were a real Mr. Wallace, 300 like, volts, whoa, 300 volts will get you, right? Ouch. Um, prior to the experiment, when Milgram first conceived of it, he went around and asked a bunch of graduate students and other social psychologists what they thought, how many people in an experiment conceived like this, how many people would go to 300 volts. And almost universally, graduate students and other social psychologists of his acquaintance all agreed that it would be 1% or 2% that made it this far. Clearly, um, he's hoping for a surprising result. Well, but he kind of is, you know, I mean, he's, he's doing this experiment for a reason. We'll see in a second. But he is stunned to realize that all of them go as far as 300 volts and fully 65% go to 450 volts, which is, um, even on the, on the machine itself, it says that 375 volts is severe shock and 450 volts is just, uh, indicated by triple X, 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 X. Oh, I see. He, he doesn't draw a skull and crossbones or anything. No, but, but the implication being, yeah. you know, this, is, and at that point, I think the learner, is slumped over and silent. 65% went all the way to... That's uh, because they did it in New Haven. Because they did it in New Haven gotta, is exactly right. you got to pick a different state than Connecticut to do this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so M Milgram um, was born in the Bronx to a Jewish family who had you know, immigrated during World War I. 
And uh, he went to James Monroe High School in the Bronx and was a precocious, um, you know, a prodigy. Went to Harvard for his PhD in social, social psychology. But this was all happening, you know, he got his PhD in 1961. He's a, he was born in 33. He's a young guy. And this is happening contemporaneously with the kidnapping and then trial of Adolf Eichmann in Israel. Right around 61, right? 61. So Eichmann was captured in May of 61. And this um, study of, of obedience, he started doing it in July of 61, just a couple of months later. So Nazi war crimes, probably never far from the mind of a of a Jewish kid from the Bronx, are back in the world headlines. Right. And he, growing up in the Bronx, uh, knew a lot of Holocaust survivors. Uh, he'd given a speech on the Holocaust at his bar mitzvah. It was a, a major part of his identity. And Eichmann's rationale, his defense, uh, was the just following orders defense. It didn't work at Nuremberg, but Eichmann thought, what, well, what else you got? I yeah, guess. yeah, what? What what else can you do, right? Yep. Just following orders. I'm not a I'm not a monster, surely. I'm a, I I don't believe I am one. So what 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 happened? And Milgram was really curious about this. Just following orders, and kind of had a suspicion that uh, that there was something to the defense or, or the the excuse of um, of like a, a predisposition to follow, to, obedi- to be obedient, to follow authority. That it's not merely a morally deficient or malicious person who would do that. That, that the mass of humans in general are susceptible to that. Right. And, and so he, he conceived of this experiment, I think, first just to see, to see what happened. You know, this, is, this was the freewheeling, uh, swinging days of social psychology when you could you could come up with an idea like this and get put an ad in the newspaper, get Yale to pony up $4.50 per session and um, see what happened. There weren't a ton of ethical guidelines in psychology experiments. I mean, even today, if you're not aware of the the ethics of, of psychological research, you would probably think, am I traumatizing any of these people, you know? And at the time, would you just think, oh, were they told at the end? Uh, so there was a debriefing that happened at the end, and uh, and Milgram recorded during the experiment that that a lot of the participants showed real signs of distress. Um, three of them had seizures. Wow! During during the session, um, but a lot of them were clearly really distraught, agitated, um, upset at at being. Uh, but continued to shock. What was the debriefing like? Pissed off at the. Uh at the messenger or relieved at the well so you know we're relying on milgram and his own accounts um but but he claimed that once he once he revealed the jig was up everyone had a good laugh yeah everybody was like oh who i mean we're talking about 1961 too so there was there was less quite a bit less of a cultural sense of um of expressing or revealing that you've sure. been traumatized. <laughs> Most of the people would be like, Oh, I was, I knew it all along. I'm happy to repress this trauma. I'll just take it out on my kids. This entry in the omnibus 
is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing a business online because they can help you create a beautiful website, engage with your audience and sell anything, whether that's your products, your content, even your time. We use Squarespace and uh, whatever it is you're making, doing or selling, Squarespace has all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. Easy to use. They have custom templates, for example. You know, so you can, they have best-in-class templates for no matter what your site is or needs to look like. You just search for the category of business you have, and they've got a website look that will work for you. JohnRoderick.com is a Squarespace template that I modded to be cool, as cool as me. I mean, maybe you're starting a business that's by appointment. And you're going to be a personal trainer or offer consulting services. Guess what? You can also add online booking and scheduling to your Squarespace site. They've already got an engine ready to go that'll handle all your booking and scheduling. Whatever it is you're making, doing, or selling, Squarespace has all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. So it's not just a website. You also get inventory management. You get web checkout. You get secure payments. It all comes bundled together. So head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code Omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. In follow-on interviews with them, 83% said that they were glad to have participated in the in the um, experiment. For for reasons that we would identify with, like I learned I learned to be wary of this part of myself. Or? Yeah. I, oh. I think um I think there were, in fact, there was a, a one of the People that was in the original experiment wa- went on to have an experience in Vietnam where they said, you know, my, my time, you know, or my experience in the, the experiment um, led me to understand in Vietnam that I needed to stop, you know, I needed to not follow orders. I was prepared for unethical orders. Yeah, I was at my lay or whatever and I, yeah. and I refused. Um, so, but there was, but it was a, a very small group of people that said, no, I I, the experiment haunts me, you know, less than 2%. Mm. He went on to, to conduct the experiment in different ways, 18 different times for, uh, with a total of 636 different students. Once you got a hit. But he was testing a lot of different variables. Right. Is this different if the, if the recipients are a different race? Is it different if the, if I use women or. He. He did, he was trying to control for the variables that, you know, like in 1961, nobody was thinking, or certainly no social psychologist at Yale was like, why don't I get people of different races in here and women? It was something. (laughs) Of course, these are all still going to be white men, (laughs) but But, let's let's find out what they had for breakfast. What he tried to do was he he conducted the experiment where the experimenter was not wearing a lab coat. Or anything else. There was one where the lab, where the lab coat person, the, the, you know, the experimenter, um, said at the very beginning of the experiment, Oh, I've got to take a, you know, I've got to go. I I have a separate thing, but I'll contact you by phone left to the room Uh, and called the teacher and instructed them to do it over the phone. At that point, the number of people that went all the way to 450 dropped all the way to 20%. Wow. It was like, the lab coat and the guy in the lab coat. A person in the room. What, what was the difference between 65% and 20%? Um, he conducted it in a uh, 
downtown New Haven building outside of Yale, like a kind of scunt, scuzzy building. So less than premature of Ivy League authority. Dropped, uh, you know, like complicity in the thing dropped to 47%. He, he did a version of the experiment where the teacher actually had to take the learner's hand and push it on the shocker, like touch them. So you're still 30% of the people went the distance, but you know, less than half. Right. Um, and then that one's eye opening about the possibilities of just very simple technologies to separate people from their moral conscience. Yeah. Very, very moral intuition. Very interesting. Um, that's why you yell at somebody on Facebook, but not on the bus. If there were Confederates, if the teacher had other people in the room, again, playing, they were actors playing the role, but they were in the same teacher role, but they resisted and said, no, I refuse. Uh, all of a sudden, only 10% of the, the, uh, the teachers followed through on the experiment. It's even more depressing, right? Like if I see someone tell me to do it, I'll do whatever. As long as one person doesn't do it, then I reassert my moral authority. Even more depressing if the teacher, the experiment to the experimentee was in a situation where someone else was actually pushing the button and they were, they were telling them they to would push just it. authorize them. I see. They were, I mean, there was still an experimenter above them, but the, but then their job was to say, you know, you need to turn up the 92 and a half percent. <sighs> went all the way to 450 wow. volts. So even most of the minority who wouldn't before would as long as they didn't have to physically. They didn't have to physically do it. If, if you're part of the chain of command, you feel like it came from above you and you just passed it on, you're not culpable. So Milgram's theory was um, that a lot of things played into the idea of authority, right? And what he called it was... Um, an agentic state. So their agency, uh, an individual's agency was transferred to the authority. And a lot of it, and you see that in that 92.5, that when they didn't actually have to do it with their own hands. There's a whole big system. It's a system, yeah. right? And and if the experimenter is perceived to be taking responsibility for the crime or, or the experiment or yeah. whatever— um, there people, you know, kind of retreat into the anonymity of just being a vessel for the authority of the other person. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, all these other factors like, oh, politeness or awkwardness. You don't want to, you don't want to rock the boat. People get absorbed in the technical aspect of it. Like I'm just here doing this, you know, I'm just a cog in the machine. I think at some point... Many people are just looking for any reason to resolve the conflict they feel between what they've been told to do and, you know, and the cognitive dissonance that results from having to carry it out. You know, you, you can't do both things, and both are powerful urges, you know, to do the thing you've been assigned and paid to do and to do what's right. And as soon as you can seize on anything as a, you know, somebody saying, I'll take full responsibility, Ken, you know, then, oh, oh, okay, He's taking full responsibility. Thank goodness. Now I can align my conscience with my assignment. And a lot of this is, you know, contained in those prompts. The experiment requires that you continue. Like the responsibility is 
vested in the experiment. It's ridiculous. The experiment has no agency or conscience. I mean, in 1961, there was a lot of feeling that science was a new authority and Yale in particular and science, like these were. And a self-evident good. A self-evident good. I mean, you'd think after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that would not be so obvious, but there is still a, a reliance on, hey, you know, that's what the, that's what the scientists said. And one of those uh, one of those aspects is the idea of belief perseverance that authority is generally benevolent even in this even in uh face of the evidence that hmm. it has turned malevolent i wonder if that's unique to fairly comfortable middle class people in new haven connecticut in 1961 so, like if you do that experiment in a place that's known totalitarian regime or you know or even today in America, that wouldn't even have to be in. It wouldn't have to be Compton. You could be almost anywhere in America. You know, the 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 attitude toward authority might be very have very different assumptions. Well, almost immediately after this experiment is is published, and he published um, he published a book called "The Behavioral Study of Obedience" in 1963. As you can imagine, I mean, based on how well we know about this experiment now, it was a a real shocker and everybody literally everybody wanted to talk about it in the press because the initial uh the initial sort of substance of the argument in the popular culture was connected to this idea of Eichmann Nazism is, everybody sees the connection yeah and and Milgram's kind of explicit about the connection and but there's immediate criticism um, criticism that this does not at all replicate the experience of Nazism. It, it does not speak to the culpability mm. of the Germans. Um, some of the initial criticism kind of misses the point. Um, right. If the idea is this experiment lets off the Nazis, I can see why there would be resistance. Yeah, and it's and it's not that. But you know, a lot of a lot of the critics said, well, you know the. In the Nazi world, it was explicitly to injure the Jews or, or murder them, um, but kind of missing the point that the vast majority of Germans were kept in this kind of, oh, it's, you know, yeah, they're sure. not being hurt. It's all in the name of or even science. Like, or even similar to the, to the Milgram experiment, yes, someone's going to get hurt, but there's a greater good. Greater good, yeah. exactly. Or, you know, the authorities the are telling us. The experiment requires it. Yeah. Um, but there was also a lot of pushback about the ethics of taking random people and subjecting them to the the torture of of learning that they are capable of torture. I'm glad that's that was contemporary and not just a uh, a revisionism of the experiment. Yeah, it happened right away, and in fact, um, it was there was such an outcry about it that it. The American Psychiatric uh, Association uh, established guidelines right away, kind of prohibiting this kind of of uh, experiment. Yeah, you're not even allowed to do that kind of benign deception in a lot of experiments anymore. You know, the 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 person has to understand, I think, what they're getting into. And Milgram understood. Um, I mean, he understood the criticism, but in the spirit of the time, kind of pushed back and said, the, the greater good of us learning 
about this stuff kind of outweighs the very brief temporary discomfort of these um, of yeah. the subjects of this experiment. Subsequent attempts to make sure that no social psychological experimentation on people is damaging. It does, you know, on one hand, you don't want the, um, you don't want a Mengele out there saying, well, the greater good allows me to dissect twins. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of the theories that social science would be trying to explore, you wouldn't be able to really fully explore without, a little discomfort. Yeah, a lot of super basic stuff it relies on some deception of the, you know the person thinks they're being tested on recall, but actually the observer is watching how often their eyes move or something. You know, like a, a, so many of these tests rely on fairly benign deception. I mean, not the kind that makes you look in the mirror and wonder if you're still a human. But well, going back to James Monroe High School in the Bronx in the 1940s, Stanley Milgram was classmates with a man by the name of Philip Zimbardo, maybe not coincidentally, they were also classmates with Art Fleming, original host of Jeopardy. Interesting. Do you think that's where he got the idea of people like pressing buttons and, and having to risk things? Yeah, sta- sta- sitting at a panel and, uh, <laughs> and being forced to ask everything as a question. Your humiliation put on live TV. You later have to grapple with your, your inner failings. So Stanley and and Art and Philip probably all hanging out around the lunch table. Uh, a, a younger classmate of theirs was uh, Jules Pfeiffer, but he came later. Wow. Um, and you think about his comics, they're not entirely inconsistent with this idea either. So there was something in the water there at James Monroe High School in the Bronx. It's a real forward-thinking school. But uh, Philip, uh, Phil, uh, so Philip Zimbardo... Uh, and I, 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 I tried and tried to find an explanation for why uh, these two guys who would have been classmates and friends went on to similarly illustrious careers. But uh, Philip Zimbardo went to Stanford and in 1971 conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment. I knew I remembered the name. The Stanford Prison Experiment being a similar situation where um, – uh, Stanford students and and residents of Stanford came in at, 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 in response to a newspaper ad and kind of, again, drew straws. Who's going to be a prisoner and who's going to be a prison guard? And over the course of the experiment, uh, he saw that, and this was, you know, they were kind of confined to the basement of a building at Stanford. And we watched as... Uh, or Zimbardo watched as the guards became more and more sadistic and kind of even without prompting uh, started to torture the their fellows who just draw of a straw were the prisoners. And they weren't, you know, they weren't obviously guilty of anything. But this is like the Milgram experiment if the... Uh if the uh, subjects had just sat and invented new electrodes to try out on the victim. Right. And they did, you know, they did water torture. They did stress positions. They did all of the Abu Gharib uh, tortures. Yeah. And the and Stanford prison experiment was referred to a lot during that period of the Iraq war because a lot of the things that the Abu Gharib guards did to those prisoners were 
Exactly. We already knew that, yeah. that humans would do that. Exactly what happened at Stanford. Now, wow. the Stanford prison experiment is widely regarded as one of the most unethical psychology experiments in history because it was let to go on until um, uh, it was allowed to go on until Zimbardo's wife, also a social psychologist by the name of Christina Maslach, um, said, you can't keep doing this. Like, this is... This is not psychology. You are now into. You know, Zimbardo was getting a little too into this. Yeah, you're into the realm of of uh, of actually torturing these people. And the, re the recipients were uh, in on it. No, so no. It, the, this is like the Milgram experiment with actual working electrodes. Yeah, and it's a situation where people are begging to be let go. Yeah, um, but it's more convincing. They're not actors. <laughs> they're not actors. So he only let it go six days. That's because Stanford doesn't have a, as good a drama school as Yale. They had to do it for real. And those people were actually, this is 10 years later, they were actually getting $15 a day. So, uh, you know, adjusted for inflation. I mean, maybe the, that's why the torture is better. Maybe hmm. if uh, Milgram had given more money. Well, so a lot of the criticism leveled at Milgram um, suggested that these results were very much confined to their place and time. And... And also that a lot of the people, you know, participating in the experiment knew that they were part of a psychology experiment. And so... Uh, maybe on the street they wouldn't act like that. Well, no, that's, yeah, that maybe some of them got that they were the, they got what was happening. Even if they didn't, they're in a slightly artificialized setting right. where you don't know if the same kind of aloofness or distance from actual human interaction would hold if, if you tried to do this on a bus or something? Well, around the United States and around the world, people in the intervening 60 years have conducted and reconducted this experiment hundreds and hundreds of times with people across all cultures, uh, groups where it's all women, groups where it's mixed. And does it hold? Incredibly consistently, 65% of the people wow. in this, this experiment, trying, attempting to control for every possible variable, end up, um, as long as there's someone in a lab coat, they end up, you know, hovering right around between 60 and 70%. So much for my ideas about how there'd be vast cultural gulfs between how authority is perceived, you know? Right. And this is the thing about Milgram, right? He's, um, there, there, there was a tremendous backlash and criticism of him for the way he conducted this experiment, but he's also one of the most revered social psychologists because this experiment holds water. And there uh, are, unlike many social psychology <laughs> experiments, this one can be replicated. Milgram actually, um, went on to conduct kind of the first truly organized small world experiment. What does that mean? Milgram, although he never, he did not coin the phrase himself, following on from, you know, suggestions. The original suggestion came from uh, Marconi's lecture or his speech accepting the 1909 Nobel Prize, where he was suggesting a uh, kind of... Is this the Kevin Bacon thing we talked this about? This is the six degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. Milgram was the first person to try and conduct the 
an experiment that proved the six degrees of separation. And we talked about it in that episode where he sent postcards out to people in Omaha, Nebraska, and Wichita, Kansas. I'd forgotten. Seeing how many people do you know in Boston. Yeah. And, uh, and then he published that, that article in the first ever issue of Psychology Today. My, my frequent bugbear and straw man when I, when I want to dismiss pop psychology. Because you can't find the first issue for your collection. But the first issue, May 1967 <laughs> issue of Psychology Today, where he described this small world experiment, um, that, that began the, the kind of global feeling that really we're about six degrees of connection from one another. And over time, it, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in his book, and it seemed that Milgram's experiment indicated that there needed to be these hyper social people, the connectors, because it seemed like yeah, some extraordinary you need to have some maven who's right. bringing so many of the postcards ended up going through this very small group of people, but just recently, because of a lot of research through about disease transmission between people, it turns out that it's actually it's actually the weak connectors. Like you don't actually need the strong connectors. The, There's so many weak connectors that that it's the weak connectors that that really do the work. And you know that we talked about it in that episode. The problem being that the person you choose to send the postcard to might not actually be the person that's closest to where you're trying to get the postcard to, right? You like you you have the bias of saying, oh well, it's a geographical bias most of the time. Like, yeah. oh, I have a friend in Boston, but really it turns out that your butcher is the cousin of the guy that you're trying to get it to, and you would never know. So it'll get to that person anyway through through a better means that, that and, your super connecting skills didn't, were not needed for. Yeah, and the disease transmission model is the one where it turns out, oh, yeah, it's usually only really three links are are enough to get you to – between you and almost anybody. Huh. Pretty weird. Pretty freaky. So what – what do you think about the, I mean, the, if the obedience experiment came out around the same time as Eichmann, that was the same time Hannah Arendt was writing about, her, you know, her findings from the Eichmann trial, just the realization that evil is not cackling it's, mad scientists. But it's like, banal. You, you get the same terrible evil results, if not more so, just from a vast apparatus of, of, banal regular people just doing their job uh it's kind of a depressing view of evil and but it's it's one that should make people look in the mirror because you think well what what systems am i perpetuating well and this is kind of the problem um with social psychology and in particular i think with social psychology as it proceeded through the criticism of the Milgram experiment, what Milgram said about his own critics was a lot of this criticism about the way I conducted the experiment is because no one wants to actually confront the results of the experiment. I believe the results a hundred percent. Like, haven't you been in situations where you were asked to do something you were uneasy about, but I mean, I've read journalism about um, the way people act in, air disasters, or it even happened in 9-11. You know, 9-11, people were told to go back to their desks. Right. 
just a, vo- a voice on the intercom. A lot of people are dead because they did. Uh, it just feels like a very strong impulse to, you know, to, and, and maybe in some cases valuable to keep the tribe together and to, you know, to do what the elders say. Right. But, um, but the, the, the thing is that the criticism of Milgram actually precipitated a new method of social psychology, right? That was, that maybe privileged not putting people under, under stressful situations. We can't ask these questions anymore. Right. Over actually trying to figure out what, what the results would be if we did. And, um, and the idea that, that introducing cruelty would affect, uh, well, was unethical. I mean, it's funny that he's introducing a small amount of cruelty because he believes a greater good is being served. Science, which is exactly the same thing his experimentees were told. Right. If you were to open a store, John, what would you sell? Oh, I've thought about this a lot. You know, vintage sweaters, um, cheap guitars, like old guitars, but cheap ones. Start making soap. No, I'm not like a, I'm not some artisanal shop guy. I think it would all be found. Just stuff you're trying to empty out of your house. Yeah, recycled garbage. There's that store in, you know, the 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 little seafaring store in Paul's Bow? Yeah. That sells like old stuff from. Old fishing uh, bobs and yeah, stuff? Yeah, just wrecked sh- ship stuff. I love that store. You just want to sell old diving helmets. I do. I want to find stuff and resell it. When you begin your old diving helmet store, let me recommend to you Shopify. Well, now, how is Shopify going to help me? It's, uh, it gives entrepreneurs the resources that like a big store would have so you could compete with them as a little entrepreneur. Oh, this is helpful because I worry about this. You worry like, about big diving helmet choking well, out your business. It's just like there are so many things that you need to have a cool online business, and I wouldn't know where to start. Shopify does it all. It helps you reach customers online using social media, helps synchronize sales you've done on different venues and platforms. Exactly. It gives you reporting of your profit margins and your conversion rates, and it helps you accept all major payment methods. It integrates all the behind-the-scenes stuff that has to happen for you to start selling diving helmets. See, this would be the stuff that was challenging for me, right? All the, like, I would get overwhelmed by trying to do all this myself. Let Shopify do it for you. It's hmm. more than a store. It grows with you. And I've got an exciting deal that I want to offer you right now, John. Well, well, what is it, Ken? If you go to shopify.com right. slash omnibus. Now that's easy to do. Slash omnibus, all lowercase. You're saying shopify.com slash omnibus and omnibus is all lowercase. The letter O, it's yeah. lowercase. Oh, I see. So don't capitalize O even though we normally would. The letter M, equally lowercase. So don't do lowercase O and then capital M, which would be weird. Neither shalt thou capitalize the N, <laughs> the I, or the bus. Uh-huh. If you do that, you will get a free 14-day trial, and that'll have full access to the entire suite of features Shopify offers. Two weeks. Two weeks. So you're saying I could grow my business with Shopify today by going to shopify.com slash all lowercase omnibus, but don't Type in all lowercase. Just type in the word omnibus, but do not hit the caps lock or shift key Right. while you do so. Shopify powers over 2 million businesses from first sale to full scale. First sale to full scale. That's Shopify. All the way from first sale to full scale. The full spectrum of things that rhyme with whale. Shopify.com slash omnibus right now. Shopify.com slash omnibus. In 2009, 
a social psychologist named Jeffrey Berger tried to conduct a version of the Milgram experiment, but that did not, that was consistent with contemporary methodology. Um, Somebody only gets one chocolate if you turn the... There was a writer by the name of Gina Perry who wrote a kind of, who got access to Milgram's papers and wrote a kind of scorching takedown of him called Behind the Shock Machine that was, um, you know, that was in all the kind of brought this question back to the fore during a period in recent years where the, um, the ethics of it were really called into question and whether or not Milgram was being entirely truthful or whether he gamed the system. Is the data good? Um, a lot of that criticism sort of contrad- or countered by all the many, many times the experiment's been conducted by other people in other places, replicating, spookily replicating the results. Hmm. But um, Jeffrey Berger conducted a new set of experiments where when he looked at the data in the original group, um, 79% of the respondents pushed past 150 volts, which was the level where, um, where Mr. Wallace started to complain. Mm -hmm. And so if 79% went past 150 volts, he extrapolated to say, well, let's see how many people get up to 150 volts and are willing to continue. We won't let them. Yeah. We won't take them all the way to 450 where we're killing the man. And he found a, with a, pr- a pretty broad group of people that even in 2009, fully 70% of the people were prepared to keep going. There's obvious criticism of that, that there's no indication, there's no proof that people would have kept going. Or how far, but yeah. In 2010, a French television show, or uh, sorry, French experimenters put together a mock reality show in France, which was almost an exact duplication of the Milgram experiment. I forgot that reality TV had sort of taken over this niche in our culture of um, lying to people and extremists to see what happens. And this was a thing, you know, the, the, the idea of the reality show was if you're going to, you know, if you're going to succeed, um, like you've got to... You've got the reality show authority guy standing there with his blue raincoat on. This is how the show works. And they found in the context of a reality show in France that 81% of the people on the reality show shocked uh, the French Mr. Wallace, Monsieur Wallace, uh, shocked him into unconsciousness. <laughs> <laughs> Think how many other people would willingly shock a Frenchman into unconscious if they mm. were from other countries. Mm. It's probably higher than 80. Ouais. Ouais, c'est ça. Uh, so, and, and there's a documentary then made about this fake French uh, reality show called The Game of Death. Highly recommended. Uh, which suggests, and, and the implication is raised in The Game of Death, that in fact, although we think of ourselves as having progressed in terms of conformity and obedience to authority from 1961 to the present, we would think of ourselves as having 
a lot more individuality and a lot less obedience to authority. But the suggestion of this experiment is that, in fact, the opposite is true. The fundamentals have, are unchanged or worse. Right. That um, that the particularly the sense of either uh, in some of the experiments the anonymity that is you know, that is granted to you by the fact that this experiment is happening in controlled circumstances and the the authority is taking responsibility or um yeah that that you know the the one step of remove and the fact that you're doing this for in the case of that game show not the greater good entertainment though yeah entertainment um the the participants feel justified i wonder what the I mean, that's really gloomy, the idea that it hasn't changed at all. Yeah. Because it implies that it's a very hard thing about human nature to change. Um, that the problem of how to do good or live a good life in modernity has little to do with the complexity of modernity, but it actually has to do with something very basic about us, which is that we are resistant to assert moral authority ever. Um, as, as long as it's easier to do so, people will do the wrong thing. And it really means, I don't know what it means, constant vigilance, I guess, in your own life to see what things you are you are doing, what systems you're perpetuating in your life that are making things worse, and you're just doing it because it's easier not to and nobody's called you on it yet. A thing that didn't exist even in 2010, that does now or just barely existed in 2010, is social media. And the, um, I think, you know, I... I talked about this a lot in college and in 2000, 1997, let's say I went through a period where I, I really made the argument to my advisors and wrote a couple of papers to the effect that we were absolutely still capable of falling under the sway of a genocidal, uh, you know, like fascist culture in the United States. And that, and my evidence was, all of the subsequent genocides to the Shoah that happened between 1945 and, and 1995. Nothing, nothing special about them. They should have learned. That's right. There were, there were genocides right and left. And, um, and I was really surprised to get almost no support for my idea. It can't happen here. It can't happen here. And there was a lot of, you know, kind of not smug, but a lot of like, really, do you really think here in the United States of America in 1995 that anybody could, would fall for fascism, let alone state-sponsored murder. And I, 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 the response was so universal from people I respected that I, that I, uh, you know, I kind of was... You were subservient to authority. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I had to really think about it. And I never was dislodged from my belief that it was possible. But, you know, my papers were given good grades because, you know, they were good papers. Technically, they were fine. But there was no, you know, I didn't, I didn't win over a single one of my professors. With a pretty basic argument that you'd think would be hard to dispute, that people are people. Right. And that, and that there was nothing special about, you know, nothing exceptional about the Nazis. Right. Um, it was just what made that uh, uh, especially horrific was mechanization and standardization. You know, it was a machine. It was just the transition from the single shotgun to the machine gun to the 
all of to which the still hold. It seems harder to argue that there is something special about post-war Germany. You know that it no. turns out, yeah, it, it turns out all that it takes would be some kind of economic or other privation and some strong authority absolving yours. What's interesting to me is that is from 1998 to the present, we've seen a lot of things happen just in the last 10 years that make it much more conventional wisdom now that of course it could happen here, that we're terrified of it happening here, that it seems to be possible that it happened almost anywhere. Seems good. Well, yeah. And it really makes that, it makes 1998 to me stand out as a period where we'd had, we'd had peace and we'd had prosperity and it, and we felt safe. Clinton era complacency. Yeah. We felt like the cold war is over and history has resolved itself in favor of democratic capitalism. And Denzel Washington is, um, is a race blind leading man. That's right. And, and how could it ever happen again? Uh, so, and you know, there are films, there are films aplenty about it, um, including a film made by Milgram yeah, in he 1974. Made a, he made a film called Obedience. A film called Obedience. But there was also a TV movie starring William Shatner. As Milgram? As Milgram, uh, that brought, was broadcast on CBS in 1975. That's funny. Isn't Shatner in the Twilight Zone where if you press the button on the box, somebody dies? Is he in that? Is he in that? Uh, am, I, am I? Am I? Am I? Uh, Shannon conf- was the one on the, in the airplane with the monkey throwing the stuff into. He the, is, but yeah. I think he's in more than one. I may be conflating two episodes, but that's funny that he's now on the other side of the box. Yeah, that it's, movie was called The Tenth Level, and it stars an uncredited or it doesn't star, but it features an uncredited John Travolta <laughs> in one of his early uh, TV movie roles. So I don't know, Ken. I mean, we're talking to futurelings right now from a. From a time when there's suddenly a new war in Europe. How much of our psyche do they share? Are they going to be vulnerable to the same to the same weaknesses that plague us? I don't know. On the one hand, it's possible that we're living now in a time when the ethical concerns about the way experiments are conducted don't allow us to consider the experiments. Um and whether or not that's a blind spot. But we've got abundant, as you point out, we've got abundant examples in real life. But we don't seem to ever be assimilating that knowledge into, it's like a, all of the serial killers that we've talked to and about for the last 30 years, true, 50 they, years. They all saw media coverage of serial killing and they were never like, oh, I need to talk to somebody. <laughs> well, that and also we don't seem to know anything more about murderous impulses. We don't seem to have any uh, greater insight or any ability to deal with them other than to wonder whether or not they qualify for an insanity defense. You know, we take them to the electric chair as though serial killing were just a normal extension of regular killing. And it doesn't seem like uh, we we're yet a- able to understand the extremes of human psychology in any kind of methodical or systemic way. It's okay to start in small ways. When the server asks if it's fine, you can send back the undercooked steak. When your boss tells you to, you can't take PTO, you can point out that you actually have three weeks coming. You can, uh, you can assert your moral authority in small ways and hopefully then you'll be less susceptible to the inevitable rise of fascism in the West. <laughs> and that concludes... The Milgram Experiment, entry 788.GE2708. 
certificate number 20495 in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, that includes uh, listening to us. Please do not do everything we say. Please don't blindly follow all the guidance we give you no. as well. I mean, we will not lead you astray. This is not a massive experiment we're running. Um, but when we say to find us on social media at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, you don't have to do that. You don't have to email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or uh, mail us physical items to P.O. Box 55744, Shaline, Washington, 98155, if you feel it would morally compromise you to do so. Hmm. Although, Monica did send us, we did a show about Valentine's Day cards not long ago, and she says uh, she has been making her own handmade Victorian-style Valentine since 1988. At first, they were handmade. More recently, as her mailing list has grown, she's been headed to Kinko's. <laughs> but she hand draws her own Valentines, and we are the only the second people ever to get a complete set. Whoa. Um, the uh, people collect them. One pal has framed them. Uh, a lot of them have hidden... This is typed on an IBM Selectric typewriter, nicer than the uh, the manual typewriter that Sparky nice. used on a recent Well, show. nicer or maybe not as nice, depending on what you, what you prefer. That's true. Uh, a little more polished. She has them all made until the year 2035, and my daughters have been instructed to continue to send them out even after I cack. Whoa, cack. Please turn up the voltage until the recipient cacks. Uh, but these are they're drawn in a variety of styles, everything from this kind of, I don't know what you would call it, kind of simple nagel oh, to that's this. cute. To a kind of oh, a those are wonderful. exaggerated Art Nouveau. Some of them have photo collage. Those are spectacular. Uh, all hand-painted, all with, many with uh, concealed items. Like on the back, it'll point out that you need to find 23 hearts in this year's card. Uh, here's somebody literally putting lipstick on a pig. The mastery of different styles is... Amazing Art Nouveau here. Um, and then for good measure, we have a um, some cheese, cheesecakey good girl art from a 1966 florist's calendar with half an ad for a TV dinner on the back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the duality of man represented here <laughs> by the Hungry Man TV dinner on the back and the Horny Man Happy Anniversary uh, painting on the front. Thank you so much for sending us these, Monica. That's fantastic. Here, you should take a look at these. You do not need to get the approval of the crowd by finding the future links on Facebook or Reddit. These are hand or done? elsewhere. Uh, I mean, some of them are not each individual one. Yeah, 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 right. But they're all hand painted and then oh, that's copied. Nice. Uh, you know, you don't need. Don't let peer pressure of the future links tell you what what to do or not to do. Look at these wonderful things. Whoa, um, there's a lot here. Certainly, if you have, uh, you know, you should not go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and uh, support the show any more than you feel morally comfortable doing so. But you would have to consider the moral compromise you face in your life if you've been listening to Free Omnibus for years and have not contributed anything. Uh, In fact, today's show specifically was a request from Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Thanks. Who donates at the washing bearer level and... Enjoyed the show. Enjoyed doing the show. And just really wanted to hear a show about people uh, giving each other electric shocks. Mm-hmm. Or pretending to. So this 2004 Valentine was actually sent. Yeah, I saw that one had a canceled stamp, it right? A canceled stamp was actually sent to someone and we have both the address of the sender and the 
and the receiver. I'm going to start sending them both Valentine cards every year, <laughs> even, though, even though apparently the recipient's address is not valid. I just love that in order to in order to collect a complete set of these, she actually had to go to someone who received one and said, send me that, will you? Can I have that back? I want to send it to Ken. If you donate at the $10 uh, monthly level on the Patreon, by the way, you can see photographs of the uh, of the stuff we tantalizingly describe. Uh, we put up a photo feed there that also has our show notes and uh, the occasional goofy candid. For example, I'm looking at the feed right now and you can actually see the salmonberry taffy that I recently received mm, from, mm. from I, our friend Robert. I gobbled that that taffy. Is it gone? Did I get one piece and then I left the rest of it here? I'm afraid you left the rest of it here. That was a mistake. Tactical mistake. then it was eaten. It was eaten. Well, I don't know. You were just following orders, I guess. Yes, that's right. There was a man in a lab coat telling me I could. It's important to the experiment that you eat 30 pieces of taffy in a sitting. It's essential that you finish this taffy, John. (laughs) The experiment requires it. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. If Providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese, and wish that you come see us often, and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.